Welcome, this is Philippe Albuquerque. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery. I'd like to welcome you to the next in a series of Editor's Choice podcast. We are presenting today the Transarterial and Transvenous Access for Neurointerventional Surgery, a report of the SNIS Standards and Guidelines Committee. This manuscript is currently on the JNIS website and will appear in the print issue of the JNIS in August. We are honored to have today two of the authors of that manuscript, Robert Stark and Justin Frazier. Dr. Stark hails from the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, and Dr. Frazier from the Department of Neurological Surgery at the University of Kentucky. Welcome, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you. I should say at the outcast that this podcast is supported by Rapid Medical, the maker of the Comanici aneurysm embolization device. The Comanici is the only temporary coiling assist device that does not require parent vessel occlusion during coiling procedures or the need for long-term antiplatelet medication for permanent stenting. The Comanici is available in Europe and was recently cleared for marketing by the FDA. Please see their website for more details. Again, thanks guys for joining us. Uh, this is an important manuscript, uh, obviously a standards and guidelines uh, statement that uh, is published in the JNIS. Um, these manuscripts are of utmost importance uh, to our readers and certainly this is a, a very timely topic. If I could ask you, and, and please feel free to alternate uh, as you will, uh, to discuss briefly the impetus behind creating this document. Well, thank you so much, Philippe, for having us today. And uh, you know, as always, it's an absolute pleasure to be able to talk with you about this and to share with our membership um, you know, some of the work that we've been doing on the committee. Uh, the effort to look at this really came from you know, a discussion of some of the changes that have been going on the last few years with regard to um, access. Um, you know, years ago, many of us were trained really to go femoral, femoral, femoral all the time. And that's really branched out in neurointervention in the last few years, uh, certainly on the backs of uh, giants in other fields, you know, in terms of cardiovascular intervention, some of peripheral intervention folks who have used other methods of access for a long time. And so it finally came to the point where we really needed to have a frank discussion. We needed to see where was the literature on this and uh, where could we draw the literature from in terms of just looking at neurointervention versus other forms of interventional practice, and how can we learn from what they've done and bring it to our space? Yeah, Justin, you, you guys refer to the compendium of access literature, especially within the vascular and cardiology fields. You know, I was struck by the fact that this literature obviously has existed for a long time. Why do you think it took so long for us as neurointerventionalists to embrace the transradial approach and, and why, as you mentioned in the manuscript, are only 5% of neurointerventions being conducted this way if it's so safe and relatively easy to perform? Yeah, thanks so much for uh, having us and thanks to all the other um, authors, the JNIS and the SNIS and all the people that spend so much time on this manuscript. I think that's a great question, Dr. Albuquerque. I think looking back, the cardiologists and peripheral vascular doctors, you know, about 10 years ago, felt, why do we need an alternative access site than femoral? Because I never see complications in femoral access. And it took that field about 10 years and many, many, many studies to move from a femoral to a radial primary approach. 
So I think it took them a long time, but certainly we're far behind them. And I think it took neurointerventional many years to start looking at other approaches for a variety of reasons. One is sort of the same reason as those other fields is that complication rates from access are very low. So it takes a very large number of patients before we can see the benefits of other approaches. I think the second thing is, you know, we all know that we're busy and it takes time, effort to learn a new practice or an alternative approach. And uh, on top of that, we feel that while we're learning something new, there is some risk to our patients before we get really efficient and effective. So we're really going on the words or the prior studies by other people in the field to make a major switch in our practice. I think the last thing is when looking at other approaches, we need other catheters to get there. A radial approach often makes perfect sense for cardiologists or peripheral vascular doctors that are taking a straight shot into the vessel. We used to use radial approaches, I think, uh, commonly in neurovascular for things like vertebral artery approaches where we have a straight shot, but it took a lot more time, effort to come up with techniques and catheters such as SIM and things like that, how to form it, et cetera, to be able to access the left vertebral artery or the left common artery from the, from the right side. So I think we're finally getting further literature to support radial access for neurovascular. Uh, but we still have a ways to go. Yeah, I agree with you, Bobby, and those are excellent points. The one point I might add is um, that it really does take a while to get your team used to doing that also. You know, you have to retrain your techs and, and your nurses in terms of uh, the radial approach, and, and certainly the, the setup is a bit different, not particularly challenging, but a bit different and, you know, a little bit out of our, our routine. So those are other factors. I did want to focus, guys, on five of the recommendations for general consideration. I mean, these really struck me as kind of the, you know, the, the major points about safe access for, for really any approach. Can you guys review those for us? When we were putting together this document as a, as a preamble to that, I would say that we started with some of these recommendations within the different categories and then realized very quickly that they applied globally to uh, every type of access. So we organize them into the, exactly as you said, this kind of general considerations area. Really, it's all based around safety and ensuring a safe access and safe uh, recovery for the patient. And so to that end, you know, we did recommend use of ultrasound. Um, it's basically for difficult access, although many of us use it for routine access, uh, simply because it gives you a live in the moment view of the moment you're getting access and, and the literature does support that. Uh, micropuncture access is a reasonable approach. Um, that was a class 2B recommendation. I know a lot of folks use micropuncture access because you know, it's, it's a, it's a less, less traumatic initial access. Uh, the use of a, the smallest diameter sheath possible to do what it is you're trying to do. So if you're there to do a diagnostic angiogram, Obviously, you can use a smaller type of sheath. Um, then looking at the artery itself, doing some kind of imaging with contrast to show that A, are you in the artery and are you not having any complication like a dissection or pseudoaneurysm? It takes two seconds to do, minimal additional radiation and contrast and can really help minimize complications. And finally, 
in alignment with many of the protocols that we are all familiar with, uh, with regard to stroke centers and uh, management of patients, we really wanna make sure we have a post-procedure periodic assessment of the access site, whether it be radial, femoral, or otherwise. And in doing so, really minimize complication risk and maximize safety. Excellent, thank you, Justin. As we move through the manuscript, you guys discuss a bit uh, vascular closure devices. These have been somewhat controversial, and they've kind of become the standard for us in neurointervention, especially in the setting of our patients, which often are on uh, dual antiplatelet therapy, are, are fully heparinized. You mentioned several of the theoretical advantages, but didn't really discuss specifically complex neurointerventions. Did you encounter any literature pertaining to the use and safety of vascular closure devices in this setting, and how would you characterize that? It goes to the heart of one of the major controversies and debates that we had as we were putting this document together. Uh, there, I think we must have gone back and forth many times uh, you know, in discussions about how strong or weak to make these recommendations. And the main issue I think we faced was a lack of good, solid data uh, really showing a benefit in neurointerventional procedures. And furthermore, a, a major benefit in other you know, procedures outside of our uh, space and you know, in the other literature. Um, so there are definitely papers out there that you can find that will show benefits to vascular closure devices, uh, but the effectiveness uh, is somewhat uncertain at least if you look at the strength of the literature right now. Furthermore, at least at the time of our construct of this document, there really was not a presence of major literature contributions to the neurointerventional space as it regards uh, this issue. Now, what's interesting, and, and this is a testament to, the, um, to our space and to the great work that many people put in to continually grow the neurovascular space, there have been a handful of papers, you know, mo mostly class three data uh, that are coming out, some prospective, some retrospective, in looking at different closure devices, specifically in neurovascular interventions. Um, the, I think even if you take that into account, the jury is still out on these things, but you know, it is nice to see that there was an unmet need in terms of the literature, and we're seeing that unmet need start to be addressed with new publications. So I would say stay tuned on that. <laughs> Excellent. I'm sure your group, Justin, will be on top of that, keeping us informed. Um, you guys also mentioned that there's insufficient information comparing the transfemoral and transradial approaches, specifically in terms of extracranial and intracranial complications. I'd say that one of my initial concerns with the transradial approach was really the amount of manipulation that we're doing in the arch using generally a Simmons catheter, uh, manipulating it not only in the arch, but in the proximal brachiocephalic vessels. My concern initially was an increased uh, risk of thrombomolic complications that really hasn't borne out in our experience. But uh, I was curious, is that what you're referring to as intracranial complications? We all do many things on a regular basis that we do over and over again. And so over time, we feel that they're safe and beneficial. This uh, publication is really a summary of the literature and guidelines and also requires 
high level evidence, you know, meaning multiple studies or well-conducted randomized clinical trials before we can really give a statement that says something is beneficial. So there are a number of studies which show the radial approach is uh, safer in terms of complications for access in neurovascular, but that's really a developing field. And I think that's the same thing with uh, intracranial complications or non-access complications, which would include uh, traversing the arch or uh, traversing any of the proximal vessels that are outside the brain. So I think initially in the cardiovascular and peripheral vascular field, it, it took many years for them to see that there was a benefit as far as access site complications. And then it wasn't until about they reached a randomized clinical trials with about 10,000 patients that they were able to show a benefit with the radial approach in terms of overall mortality. So certainly for us, we have not gotten anywhere near that as far as radial approach in looking at intracranial complications. So some of the largest studies uh, that have been a comparison, there was a study that compared carotid stenting from a radial versus femoral approach, which showed overall similar intracranial complications. We recently published a study, which uh, I know you guys highlighted in JNIS, looking at pipeline from a radial versus femoral approach. And again, we saw less intracranial complications with a radial approach, but I think None of this has reached the level of evidence that is seen in the cardiac literature, which was demonstrated through randomized clinical trials of you know, many, many thousands of patients. So I think we feel that it's uh, similar or better, but I think it's really up to us as a, as a neurovascular field to prove and continually show that it's potentially a better option and also for which patients it might be a better option. Bobby, that's a great point, and I wanted to kind of diverge here a little bit. How do you think we'll get to that level of evidence? Do you think it'll be all of us just reporting our retrospective or, or even small prospective series, or do we need to get a registry of patients that we're doing neurointerventions on through a transradial approach? How are we going to get to those thousands of patients that are going to enable us to establish that transradial is, is really the better approach in terms of mitigating neurovascular complications? Many paradigm shifts in any field start out with a case report and then a case series and then better perspective studies and then joint studies from multiple institutions. So we are sort of in those phases before, you know, major studies are conducted like large national, international, many center perspective randomized clinical trials. I think we're starting to band together and there's been more publications using multi-institutional reporting and experience. There have been some early perspective studies, but I think as a field, we do need to join together to uh, look at this more carefully in a systemic and organized fashion, because we often realize that without that, we sort of impute our own biases into these studies. So I think we're currently moving forward with a number of multi-institutional studies. I think on top of that, we will need perspective and potentially even randomized studies further down the road before all of the field sort of adopts you know, a major change. Because even though we're seeing potentially less complications, there's always gonna be people in the field that say, 
well, you may have had bias or other problems or this or that. And I'm not going to be convinced until we get to a sort of a higher level of evidence. And I think that's one thing that we really struggled when we were writing this document, the trans radio section. Uh, and even since then, there have been a number of publications that I think have been important that weren't included in this paper or this consensus statement. But still, we still have a long ways to go for high level evidence for radial approaches for neurovascular disease, even though many of us feel that it is a safer and better, certainly for select patients. Yeah, I agree. We still have a bit of a, a hill to climb here, but certainly, at least in our early experience, the transradial approach really has been a, a godsend. Um, and I, I don't want to uh, focus just on the transradial approach because this this great document that you guys put together really highlights you know all of the different potential uh, arterial uh, and venous approaches uh, to the uh, intracranial space, um, but. There is still the, the major issue in my mind of radial artery spasm and radial artery occlusion that, that continue, I think, to be barriers to the conversion to the transradial approach. Can you guys discuss some of the measures that uh, are employed to mitigate radial artery spasm? You, you touch on them briefly in your manuscript, though don't go into them in, in incredible detail. And also to tag on another question, as for the radial artery occlusion, since it's largely clinically silent, as you mentioned in the manuscript, what do you recommend as a means of assessing this in the, the acute period? Uh, you mentioned assessing radial artery patency at discharge and in the first clinic visit. Um, I was a little uh, perplexed by this. I mean, why at that point um, would you assess the patency of the radial artery? Would you intervene at that delayed time point to reopen the artery? Thankfully, the cardiac and the peripheral vascular disease areas have given us a lot of help in these things. And they've conducted many, many randomized clinical trials to look at all of these things, which I think are summarized in the article. But briefly, some of the things that are beneficial in decreasing spasm and occlusion, even though, as you said, it's basically case reportable to have symptomatic ischemia or symptoms from occlusion. But some of the things that can be beneficial are using nitro glycerin and lidocaine topically 30 minutes before the procedure using smaller sheaths and ultrasound and radio approach using a counterpuncture uh, approach has also been shown to be beneficial using heparin has been shown to be beneficial using verapamil and nitroglycerin nitroglycerin after accesses have been tamed it decreases uh, these problems and then I think one of the things is what to do if, you know, how to monitor, and then also what to do if you find occlusion. We usually check um, pulses before discharge, and I think it's uh, reasonable to do on follow-up. Generally speaking, as you said, it's asymptomatic, but you may want to access that blood vessel again for further treatments down the road. And that's part of the reason that we switched probably about two years ago to using the snuff box for most approaches, because then you still have the radial artery proper for further angiograms or treatments if you have any issues. But there have been some studies that have shown that if you have radial artery occlusion, it can be reopened and that might be beneficial for further procedures or treatment. So Bernard did a study, actually a randomized clinical trial where they looked at ulnar compression and heparin and also heparin dosages in a reasonably large number of patients. And they found that 
if you find that the radial artery is closed, compression of the ulnar artery increases the chances of the radial artery reopening. And they also found that a higher dose versus no dose of heparin leads to increased reopening of the radial artery. So 2,000 versus 5,000 units were compared and they found that also significantly decreased radial occlusion rates. So I think more of that needs to be developed as far as what we do on discharge and follow-up. We don't necessarily get routine ultrasounds, but I think that's an area that still can be further developed. Lastly, we have found patients that have had occluded radial arteries on follow-up angiography uh, when we're planning a procedure and we have been able to go through the same vessel and access the radial artery. So that's another thing that I think could be developed further and we need to take a closer look at. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, one of the nice things about this statement is that you guys really do touch on some of the more esoteric uh, catheterizations that we perform. The umbilical artery access, you discuss as well, pediatric access, which I found very informative. It's interesting now, I think that, um, that as our fellows get better with the radial approach, with use of the ultrasound, catheterizing a smaller vessel, they've become actually much better at pediatric access. Um, one of the things that you guys discuss, as I mentioned, is the umbilical artery access. At our place, generally, we have our NICU team insert these as these patients obviously are generally neonates and the artery is patent uh, only for a few days. Can you discuss uh, a little bit uh, in more detail some of the, uh, the nuances of umbilical artery access and its importance? This is another one of those areas that could use further development. We as well, we have about 100 NICU beds and the NICU team is very well versed at inserting umbilical artery and umbilical vein sheaths for a very large variety and number of situations and diseases. And so we also are happy to defer to them as they are really experts at getting umbilical and arterial access. And I agree that for vein of Galen malformations, it's extremely important. Again, I think the literature and as far as the levels evidence is it's not exactly clear, but generally speaking, below three kilograms, I'm a lot more nervous about getting femoral access in these really tiny pediatric patients or either premature patients. So that's usually what I look at. Also, we'll measure with ultrasound and then guide the size of the femoral vessel versus the sheath that we need to insert as far as whether or not umbilical access is necessary. Uh, I think the last thing is when can you obtain umbilical access? And that's really not clear. You know, it's easier to gain umbilical access at birth uh, and it becomes more challenging, obviously, days later. We have gained umbilical access up to 11 days post-birth in one patient. But I think the longer you wait, certainly the more difficult it is. Overall, I think because so few of these cases are done in the neurovascular field, we really need to look at this area in a much wider environment, you know, in terms of not just neurovascular approaches, but all umbilical and vein and artery approaches to get a better sense of when we can do these things and what are the risks and benefits as a literature as a whole.
Yeah, I agree with you. I think the more literature that we can compile, the better. And, and looking at different subspecialties and how they use the umbilical artery and some of the nuances and complication avoidance techniques, I think, uh, will be essential. Well, I, I don't want to leave our audience thinking that this manuscript just pertains to trans arterial approaches. Uh, you discuss at length as well transvenous approaches. Um, I would anticipate that this uh, approach is going to evolve similarly to um, the transfemoral to transradial conversion. And I was curious what you guys think of that. I've seen you know, a number of papers submitted to our journal pertaining to um, venous access of the upper extremity for treatment of uh, intracranial venous vascular disease. Do you think that that's where transvenous access is heading in the future? We've moved towards doing most of our venous access in the arm, and we're currently compiling, I think we have almost 150 cases in a multi-institutional effort. So we're happy if others want to contribute to that series. But I think we're moving in that direction, but certainly like the arterial approach, we need to gain further information about complications and also failures. Justin, did you have something to add there? I totally agree with Bobby on this. What is an interesting driver uh, of that is I think that for many years, transvenous access was an afterthought because it was relatively uncommon uh, as something that we did or needed to do. Occasionally, you know, we, and we had a figure on this in the paper, really, you know, local uh, injection for CC fistulae, those are pretty rare cases which it's important to know how to do that in rare cases. But I think that if you look where neurointervention is likely heading over the next five to 10 years, I think that there are a lot of additional procedures that we are already doing and will be doing a lot more in the future through transvenous routes. Uh, you know, there are a number of examples on that. The literature coming out on transvenous embolization of fistulae and, and, and AVMs, the uh, venous sinus stenting for, for idiopathic intracranial hypertension. So there's a number of things that we are doing that are drivers for increased transvenous access. And I think that is going to push us even further to wanting to do uh, improve, if you will, or build on uh, those access sites. Great points, guys. And I would think that even in comparison to arterial access, the transvenous uh, access in the arm should be associated, I would think, with even fewer complications. Uh, I've enjoyed our discussion, but I want to give you guys a chance to make some concluding remarks, perhaps summarize your statement in a little bit more detail. It's worth noting quickly that these documents go through a very uh, strong and rigorous vetting process that doesn't, uh, it's not just, you know, four or five people writing a paper. Well, those are the main authors displayed at the top. Uh, if you scroll down you know, and look at the group of collaborators at the end of the paper, and you'll see that it includes the leadership of the SNIS, it includes a number of experts in the field, uh, as well the strong vetting process that the document then goes through at the journal. And I think it's a great partnership that these documents represent between the society and the journal in ensuring that that what is published is really, you know, up to a standard that our membership should expect of us uh, to really help guide the field. 
And so I, I would thank you for that. In terms of the, the different areas, if you read the paper, we did talk about transvenous, transarterial, transfemoral, transradial, umbilical. Uh, we did touch on the transbrachial access and where that stands in the context of the current uh, field. We also talked about direct uh, carotid and vertebral access. And we showed a figure as well, as I mentioned before, about direct cannulation to the superior ophthalmic vein for addressing problems with the cavernous sinus. And so we really tried to be as rigorous and as um, comprehensive as possible to address each of the areas that are most commonly used to access for neurointervention. And again, thank you very much, Philippe, for the chance to really talk with you about this. You guys are very welcome and, and can't tell you how much I appreciate your time discussing this important work. And I congratulate you on putting together this comprehensive statement on, on what is absolutely a critical issue for us in neurointervention. So thanks again, guys. Uh, as a reminder, the statement is entitled Transarterial and Transvenous Access for Neurointerventional Surgery, Report of the SNIS Standards and Guidelines Committee. It is currently on the JNIS website and will appear in the print issue in August of the JNIS. Thank you again, Bobby, Justin, for your time today and congratulations. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you.